I come here every year about this time. And each year I'm afraid to repeat, afraid of repeating what I've told you before. Except that two years ago, just before the talk, someone came up to me and said something I had said the previous year had meant so much to her. And she repeated what it was, and I re it was something I would never say. <laughs> so I realized you probably don't remember what I'll say anyhow. <laughs> so there's no danger of repetition. Tonight's talk is going to be on the Ten Perfections. Um, and we most often think of the perfections in the context of the Mahayana, that it's a Mahayana teaching. However, if you actually look back in the early texts, you find that there is a pre-Mahayana version of the perfections taught in the Theravada school. And I bring up the history because it, it's not in the very earliest text. It comes in a later strata of the text. But it comes from texts that came from a time when they were trying to formulate a version of the path that would apply to everyone, lay people and monastics alike. And so for lay people who are looking for a way to can sort of conceive and look at their practice in daily life. I think it's, it's a good list of teachings to consider because it takes into consideration the, the fact that not everyone is going to be a monastic and yet there's still a lot that can be done in the practice that's a benefit in daily life for everybody. Um, a lot of the lists may seem kind of dry and academic, but the whole purpose of having lists of various qualities, which the, which the perfections are, comes from the fact that the practice involves many qualities. It's not just one quality is going to do everything for you. Mindfulness on its own is not going to sort of take care of everything. You've got to develop other qualities in concert with it. So it's the idea that there's a whole constellation of factors that you want to develop together that's important for a balanced and um, solid practice and, and development. And the perfections address two main issues. One is the fact that we're living in an imperfect life. And how are you going to develop perfections in an imperfect life? And it's a typical pattern throughout the Buddha's teachings that you take imperfect things and you use them to develop towards perfection. You don't have to wait until perfect mindfulness comes along before you can get some use out of your imperfect mindfulness. And it's looking at the, the, the raw stuff of your imperfect life and deciding what you want to do with it, what your priorities are. Because the word perfection in Pali, Bardami, has two analyses or two etymologies is what the meaning comes from. One is barang, it's connected to the word barang, which means taking you over to the other side, taking you to the further shore. Another one, which I think is more relevant to uh, tonight's talk, is the issue that it's related to the word barama, which means things of foremost importance. In other words, what, what priorities you have in your life. If you're going to be living, living the Dharma in daily life, <coughs> it's very different from living it in a meditation retreat where many things have already been decided for you. Your schedule, when you're going to walk, when you're going to sleep, when you're going to sit, what you're there for has already been decided. Whereas you step out into the outside world, these things are not decided for you. You have to decide for yourself what's of primor primary importance in your life, what things that you're going to give priority to. And the, and the issue of the bottomies or the perfections is that the most important thing to develop in the course of daily life or your whole goal for your life has to be focused on developing qualities of mind. Several years back I had an experience visiting my father down in Virginia 
He now lives in Williamsburg. But years before, we had lived in Charlottesville. <coughs> and he had built a house. He didn't build it all by himself, but he was involved in the design. He was involved in the woodwork and getting the house done. We hadn't visited the house for many years. So one day, we decided to drive out and look at the house. And we got there, and we discovered that the current owners were not taking care of it. The eaves were falling down, and it looked pretty grungy. And on the way back from the visit, uh, the trip to the house, my father mentioned to me, he said he looked back on his life, and he's now in his 84. He looked back on his life, and he said he couldn't see anything that he'd accomplished, any signs of anything he had done. He originally had worked for f as a farmer, a potato farmer down in Long Island, and the government almost every year said, well, dump all those potatoes, don't sell them to keep the market price up. He had to leave the potato business. He became a government worker. He worked his way up in, in the bureaucracy. And from the outside, it looked like a successful life. But he, many times, he was on the Water Council and um, Water Resources Council. And he said many times, you know, dams, canals, other things were proposed to Congress, and then they pork-barreled them out of, out of recognition. So he looked back on his life, and he said he just couldn't see anything, that, anything concrete left to show for his having been alive. And this, to me, pointed out the importance that you can't base your, accomplish your sense of accomplishment in life on outside things, because it's dependent on so many other variables that are totally out of your control. You can do your best to leave your mark on the world, but a much more solid and dependable place to leave your mark is developing the qualities of your own mind. So you work so as to develop these perfections, you, both in your, your home life, in your work life, <coughs> And if this becomes your priority, then no matter what happens in terms of the success or the fa failure of the project, you yourself have developed qualities that you can carry on, and that, that constitute the accomplishment of your life. There's a list of ten in the perfections, and tonight we're going to focus on number eight, which is determination, for several reasons. One is the issue of determination, um, <coughs> is that it's a quality required for starting the path and for setting your priorities means making the decision what you feel is important in your life and what you're going to stick to. Secondly, that aspects of, this, of skill determination cover all ten of the perfections, and I'm going to be illustrating this in the course of the talk, which illustrates again the principle that each of the perfections contains all the others. You develop one in a proper, balanced way, and other elements of the list are going to come as well. Um, <coughs> the Buddha said that proper determination comes down to four qualities. The first is discernment and choosing what your goals are going to be. In other words, you have to look at the various alternatives and, and reflect on exactly what do you think is the most wise use of your time. Because one of the basic Buddhist teachings is that we each has, have limited time, limited energy. And so what's the best investment? It's kind of like Buddha as invest investment banker. Which investment is going to give you the most return on your time and energy? The second quality, once you've determined what your goal is, that you must be true to it. Now, the quality of truth here doesn't mean telling the truth, but it means once you've made up your mind you're going to do something, you're true to that decision. You don't play traitor to yourself. You don't, get <coughs> you don't abandon your decision. Third quality is relinquishment. In other words, anything that's going to get in the way of your goal, you have to be willing to let go of. There's a very basic principle um, that if there's a higher happiness to be won by sacrificing a lower happiness. You should be willing to sacrifice the lower happiness for the sake of the higher one. Um, this principle is so pervasive that back when I was, was a monk in Thailand, <coughs> we had to take monk exams. You think monks have it easy? 
they have monk exams. And one of the monk exams that you have to take is you have to write a little Dharma talk. And the principle being that you memorize various sayings of the Buddha. And then they will give you a saying of the Buddha, and you have to talk about that saying that you've been assigned, and then tie in what particular sayings that you've memorized. And for little novices who don't have much in terms of um, sort of independent thinking, but what they'll do is they'll just memorize a lot of little sayings and have lots to draw on. And my case was just the opposite. I was having trouble memorizing. It was hard enough having to take this in tie to begin with. But I had to memorize polyphrases as well. So I memorized one, which I thought was going to cover every alternative. And it was this basic one. If, you're, if you see that there's a higher happiness to be gained from giving up a lower happiness, be willing to give up the lower one. And I found that no matter how many times I took the exam, I could always tie that into whatever the theme was. <laughs> so it's a very basic principle. The fourth quality that's um, useful in good determination, or in skillful determination, is the quality of calm. And this enters into the equation in two ways. One, when you realize that you've got to give something up, you learn how to calm your mind and not be upset by what you've given up. Don't regret it. Don't look back on it. Third, if through working at the thing that you've determined that will be your goal, you achieve a state of calm, it's a sign that you really were right in choosing a proper goal. If you achieve a goal and there's no sense of calm, you get your Lexus, you get your whatever, you get your, you get your PhD, and you're still not calm, you're still not happy. Well, it seems that there's got to be something else that's got to be your goal. So these are the four qualities that the Buddha said go into wise determination, starting out with discernment and being true to what you've determined you're going to do, be willing to relinquish what you need to relinquish, and then fourth, developing a state of calm. Now, each of these four categories contains, if you put all four categories together, contains all ten of the determinations. Discernment is one of the, dis the excuse me, one of the perfections. Discernment is one of the perfections, and it also encompasses goodwill. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Truth is also one of the perfections, and it covers persistence, virtue, and endurance. Relinquishment is not listed as a perfection itself, but under it can come generosity and renunciation. And under, under the quality of calm, you have the perfection of equanimity. So under these four headings, you get all ten of the perfections that are listed in the text. So I'd just like to go down this list of four and show how they're related. <coughs> Discernment in the, in the Buddhist teachings as a quality that you want to develop can come from three things. One is from listening. The third is from thinking over what you've heard. And then th the third is, in Pali, it's called developing, which literally means developing these qualities in the mind through meditation. Um, in the course of listening, the Buddha said, you can't just be passive in your listening, that you should try to be active in as answering, asking the proper questions. And I always thought it interesting that the very first question the Buddha asked you, has you ask when you approach a teacher is, what is skillful? What, if I do it, will lead to my long-term happiness? What, if I do it, will lead to my long-term unhappiness? And you listen to the answers that the teacher gives you. This, he said, is the beginning of all discernment. You think over what you've heard, and then you try to develop what makes sense out of the teaching. In the process of development, there's a nice analogy in the teachings of Ajahn Lee. He says, learning to meditate properly, learning to develop these qualities in your mind, learning to develop discernment, putting into action, is like learning how to be a basket maker. You go to the teacher, and the teacher teaches you the basic patterns for weaving. But simply because you've been taught those patterns doesn't mean that you're going to be a good basket maker. You have to practice. 
and in the course of practicing you look at the results of what you've done. And I think this is a very important quality in doing meditation from the very beginning. He says you weave a basket and you look at what you've got, and most often it's not going to be balanced, it's going to be look kind of crude, but you try to figure out well, what's wrong. And then you make another basket make on based on what you've observed, and then again, and again, and again. And what you've learned is you've learned from your own actions. That's what the process of developing discernment is all about. You look what you're doing in your meditation, you see what's giving results, what's not giving results, and you adjust what you do. It's not a process of simply being told X, Y, Z, and then just doing X, Y, Z, and coming out with the, you know, the, the proper result at the end. Otherwise, meditation would be like processed cheese. You just stick everybody's mind to the factory and it comes out the other end and then it's enlightened. But it doesn't work that way. You've got to use your own powers of observation. In the course of which, you, as you develop more and more skill in your meditation, the, the Buddha's basic teachings on skill come down to two issues. That, you know, your actions give results and the results are either good or bad. And if you think about this for a while, you realize that you've got, this, you've got the seeds for the Four Noble Truths right there. Caught, there's the cause of suffering, and then there's also the path that leads to the end of suffering. You've got cause and effect, skillful and unskillful, and we put those variables together. You've got the structure for the Four Noble Truths, which is the basis for right view. Based on that, you develop right resolve. And the list of right resolve is uh, renunciation, thoughts of, thoughts of goodwill, and then thoughts of not harming. Several years ago, I gave a talk on right resolve. And as I pointed out, thoughts of goodwill are easy to think as a good resolve. Thoughts of not harming are think it good to easy to think of as a good resolve. Whether you can do them or not, they're good things to think about, right? Renunciation? We're not so sure about that. We're not so sure we want to renounce things. But it's a, it's a definite part of discernment, as I pointed out earlier, and we'll discuss further on. Connected to this, the issue of discernment, is also the issue of goodwill. You want to use your discernment for the well-being of yourself and others. That's the proper use of your discernment. That's what the issue of skillful comes down to. If your action is causes harm to yourself, causes harm to other people, it is unskillful. It doesn't qual qualify as right discernment. So this, this aspect of discernment contains the perfection of goodwill as well. And it's interesting to note that in the Pali Canon, the issue of whether you should help others or help yourself first doesn't come up. For the belief that if you're helping yourself properly, you're helping other people. When you're helping other people, you're helping yourself. The two go together. And the image that they use is of two acrobats. One acrobat standing on the shoulders of another acrobat. And in the story they tell, the, the teacher acrobat tells his student, it's okay, you watch out for my balance and I'll watch out for your balance and we'll come down okay. And the student says, that's not going to work. I've got to watch out for my balance, you watch out for your balance, then we'll come down from the pole all right. The idea being that if you can develop balance in your life, you're going to be helping other people attain balance in their lives as well. So under the, c the category of discernment, you've got these two perfections, discernment itself together with goodwill. Under the category of truth, you have, as I said, the perfection of truth, the perfection of persistence, endurance, and the perfection of virtue. Truth, as I mentioned earlier, and it bears repeating, means being truthful. Not necessarily that you simply speak the truth. And this is very essential to the Buddha's teachings, that if you want to know the truth, you have to be a true person in doing the practice. I mean, you can, hear the, you can hear the teachings, you can think about them, but if you really want to know the truth of the practice, you've got to get down into it. 
It only comes through development. In the course of being truthful, you've got to make up your mind that there are certain principles that you're going to hold to, and this is where virtue comes in. Um, we often think of virtue in terms of the precepts, but the Buddha's teachings on, on virtue encompass more than just precepts. First, it starts out with the whole, the whole notion of basic relationships. In fact, if you look at the ethical teachings of different religions, you'll find that they, every religion will have a set of three types of teachings, teachings based on relationships, teachings based on precepts, and teachings based on principles. As for the relationships that are taught in, in, the, in the Buddhist teachings, um, I've recently become interested in what I call children's Buddhism. In other words, looking through the Pali Canon to see how the Dharma is taught to kids. Um, basically because a lot of some of the more abstract principles get really brought down to earth. You can't teach a kid about emptiness in very vague terms. Or you can't teach about you know, codependent arising in vague terms. So the kid will not take it in. So it's interesting to see how the Buddha explains these things to children to give you a real basis of where he's coming from. It's based on the principle, someone told me one time, that if you're, if you're out interviewing someone for a, an article, it's best to act a little dumb so that the person will feel obliged to explain things in really clear terms and often will come out with something that's really rel revelatory that they wouldn't otherwise, otherwise explain. In this particular context, the issue of relationship comes from a uh, <coughs> teaching that the Buddha gave on what's called the list of the novices questions. It's kind of a catechism for young novices as they get ordained. And the, the questions go, what is one, what is two, what is three, what is four, and down to what is ten. And many of the answers, if you've studied any Buddhism at all, are pretty obvious. What is four? Four noble truths. What is five? The five aggregates. What is six? The six sense spheres. The most interesting question is, what is one? And the answer is that all beings subsist on food. The idea that the relationship of taking taking in food is the basic relationship. Based on the idea of taking in food, then the Buddha talks about dependent co-arising and the fact the interdependence of things, basically that people are feeding on each other, not only physically, but also emotionally and mentally. And not just people, everybody in the, in, in, in the universe is involved in this process of mutual feeding. Now, when you have mutual feeding going on like this, the fact that your existence depends on taking something from somebody else, and their existence depends on taking something from you, it's sort of the, the give and a take. The, the sort of the, <coughs> the requirement that's placed on you, or the duty that's placed on you, is to be responsible in your feeding. Feed responsibly, so that means if you feed responsibly, other people will feed responsibly on you. If you're irresponsible in your feeding, watch out. There's going to be karmic consequences. Um, last October, I was teaching in Palo Alto, and I brought up this point about irresponsible feeding. And now that's, that was the center of the most irresponsible feeding in the past year or two, was Silicon Valley. <coughs> and I said, watch out. And sure enough, they're, now they're getting fed on. <laughs> so the principle still applies. Given this relationship and the fact that there is this kind of process of mutual feeding going on, um, the Buddha then lays out certain precepts and certain principles for practice. The combination of precepts and principles I think can best be understood in terms of um, wilderness training. You go out into the wilderness, the first thing you want to know from your wilderness instructor is the do's and don'ts. And if a bear charges me, what do I do? And you don't want an abstract pr principle. You want rules. Bear charges you, don't run. Remember that. That's the basic principle for being out there. Um, 
and they go down the list. What, what are the do's and the don'ts? Several years back, I was up in Alaska, and if you've ever been in Alaska during the summer, you'll notice that they put up these big signs that they call, <laughs> they call bear awareness. <laughs> and it's spelled differently from what you've seen in the past. <laughs> and it goes down the list. If a bear charges you, don't run. And, and what to do and what not to do in bear country. Finally, point number 10. If a bear actually does attack you and starts, it will start even start you know, nibbling at you out of curiosity, play dead. Just lie down and play dead. And they said in nine out of 10 cases, the bear will lose interest. Nibble on you a little bit, oh, this is dead, they'll go away. Now the question arises, what about that one out of 10 cases? <laughs> <laughs> and they said that, well, there are a few cases where the bear is actually hungry and will take you as food. In which case, if you realize that the bear is nibbling on you out of hunger rather than curiosity, fight back. This means you can't just have rules. You also have to develop qualities of the character to know, okay, <laughs> so that you can have your wits about you when a bear is nibbling on you, because you know the signs, okay, what's curiosity and what's um, hunger? Requires a lot of mindfulness and a lot of alertness, and a pretty steely will <laughs> to survive this. But so it, it comes down to the fact that simple rules are not enough. You also need principles of behavior to cover the situations where the rules don't cover. And this is what the Buddha's basic principles are. It's interesting in the terms of virtue that he lists two virtues that are very rarely discussed in American Buddhism. One is a sense of shame, and the second is a sense of fear of the consequences of bad actions. The Pali words are hirdi and otapat. The sense of shame here not means, does not mean being ashamed of yourself. Actually, it means pre having pretty high self-esteem. In the sense, you think of doing something, you would be ashamed to do that. You're, that's beneath you. You don't want to do it. And that protects your virtue. The second fear of consequences of, of wrong actions. You may want to do something, but if you think about it and you realize that this is going to cause some pretty bad consequences, you hold back. Your ability to hold back there is what protects you. It protects the people around you. So the Buddhist teachings on virtue, that, that which come under the heading of truth here, means, in other words, understanding your relationship to the rest of the world around you, to living in such a way so that your feeding relationship there is principled, is responsible, based both on instructions and precepts and instructions and principles. Ultimately, of course, you'll see that this, these relationships that you're in are are ultimately suffering. You more, more and more reflect on the fact that one, being fed on is not particularly a comfortable position to be in. Two, the act of feeding itself is not comfortable because you're dependent on other people. You constantly have to go out and depend on their kindness, depend on their cooperation, depend on their help in order to survive. In fact, the Buddha's definition of, of suffering comes down to what he calls upadana, which is often translated as clinging, but it also has a, the meaning of taking sustenance. Having to feed is basically suffering. Having to depend on other people puts you in a very, very awkward relationship, which you'd be better not to be. And so the, the, the practice that the Buddha recommends as a whole might be seen as learning how to feed your mind in such a way that it gets in a position where it no longer has to feed. It gets strong enough in feeding on good things, developing good qualities in the practice, being principled, developing good principles in the way you interact with other people. So the mind is ultimately so strong doesn't need to feed, it can be independent. That, in a nutshell, is the Buddhist teachings on virtue. Related to virtue are the two qualities of persistence and endurance, which are also 
perfections. These are the perfections that a lot of people don't like to talk about. They're kind of the Capricorn, <laughs> Capricorn qualities, which nobody particularly cares for, but you can't live without them. Persistence here means not so much that you throw yourself with intense effort into things, but simply that you are persistent again and again and again in trying to do the right thing. You stick to the right thing. And this, in, in the terms of the Buddhist teachings, means getting rid of unskillful qualities in the mind, which sometimes may take a exertion and sometimes may require simple equanimity. Simply watching unskillful qualities as they arise in the mind. You look at them and say, I don't want to act on that. Think of your mind as a committee. And all these proposals are coming up in the committee. And just because the proposal comes up and it's on the floor doesn't mean you're responsible for it. But you have the choice to decide whether you want to side, which, which voice in the committee you want to side with. And this is where meditation is very, very helpful in the sense it helps you to listen to the various voices inside you. You realize, well, who is the wise, which are the wise voices? What are the tone they de- develop, adopt? What are their agendas? And you learn to side with the wise voices and to try to get rid of the unskillful, or at least don't entertain the notions that come from the less wise voices in your mind. Related to the quality of persistence is endurance, that you've got to stick up with negative situations. This is a given in our imperfect world. The Buddha said ultimately that the ultimate austerity, or the one that gives the most results, is simply this quality of endurance. And it requires a certain attitude. And I think it's best exemplified by a monk whose name was Buna in the time of the Buddha. Buna comes to take his leave of the Buddha. He says, I'm going off to this foreign country, a foreign part of India. And the Buddha says, well, the people in that part of India are, are well known to be pretty violent. What do you do if they start yelling at you and criticizing you? And say, well, I think it's, these are very civilized people and that they're not throwing stones at me. Okay, what if they throw stones at you? He says, well, they're very civilized and that they're not using a knife at me. <laughs> and what if they attack you with a knife? Well, it's very good that they're not killing me. He says, what if they kill you? He says, well, there are other people who have died from suicide. At least if I get killed, I will not have committed suicide. (laughs) (laughs) This is called learning to look on the bright side of things. Uh, (laughs) To the extreme. The quality of endurance the Buddha also taught can be developed through developing goodwill. There's a famous um, passage in which the Buddha mentions that, okay, when people are speaking to you, they're going to speak in one of five ways. Either what they say will be timely or untimely. In other words, if someone has something, that, some big issue to discuss with you, they may take you off and talk to you on your own so that you're not embarrassed in front of other people. Or they won't you know, insist on doing it in front of other people to embarrass you. That's one way you might be talked to. What they may say may be true or may be false. They may speak to you with affection or with hatred. What they talk about may be beneficial or unbeneficial. You sort of go down the lines. And so these are the various, various variables in terms of speech. And the Buddha says, in ke- each of these cases, you should tell yourself, no matter what way they're speaking to me, I'm going to try to maintain a mind of goodwill to this person. Because maybe they're speaking in wrong ways, but uh, maybe they've been helpful in other ways. Or if they've never been helpful at all, if they're a totally evil person, you've got to feel sorry for them because they're creating really bad karma. The image he gives of seeing somebody sick and out in the desert with no help at all. You look at that person, you say, this poor person, somebody should help this person. They're totally miserable. So in other words, you ha- learn how to think in ways that help you endure, help
help you to put up with negative things. He said, and if you think that you know, putting up with wrong speech is going to be difficult, well, imagine that even in the case where thieves come up and were to dismember you limb by limb with a saw, you should still have goodwill to those thieves, to say nothing of people who speak to you in, in harmful or unfriendly ways. So a lot of endurance is not simply a matter of just putting up with things, but learning to think in such a way that helps you endure. So you can see, well, this is not, you know, it's not as bad as it could be. And if it gets to the ultimate bad, well, at least I didn't commit suicide. <laughs> okay. This brings us to the next, the, f the third of the three qualities that are important in de determination, which is relinquishment. And under this comes renunciation and generosity. The Buddhist teachings on renunciation regard it more as a trade than as an actual giving up or a deprivation. In other words, when you renounce certain things, there's going to be good benefits that are going to come to you, if it's a, if it's a skillful renunciation. You've got to realize that there are many happinesses. You can't have everything. Uh, every time I go to, to San Francisco, where the human, you know, the human potential movement has really taken root, you've really got to be there to realize how much that, that has really gotten into the whole society out there. The idea that you can be physically, emotionally, spiritually, financially, whatever, perfect. Most frazzled people on earth live in this place because they feel they've got to have everything. They've got to cover all the bases. But if you realize, okay, what's really important in life, you've got to focus on that. And sometimes if there are other things that get in the way, you're willing to give them up, like I said earlier. A couple years back, a friend of mine who is a novelist, <coughs> teaches down in Virginia, wrote a novel. And every time she writes one of her novels, she's invited out to the alumni clubs to read from her novel. And in her last novel, she realized that to read to an alumni club, you have to have a short, self-contained passage that makes sense in and of itself. You can read it for 15 minutes before the alumni lose interest. And it all makes sense as a, as a unit. In her last novel, there was only one scene in the entire novel that made this, that fit the bill. And the novel is about a young woman in China, back in the 17th century, whose mother dies. The father swears up and down he's never going to marry again. He's going to remain faithful to the memory of the girl's mother. And within a couple of months, he gets sent off on some government business and comes back with a courtesan as his new wife. Well, the courtesan is no fool. She sets about to be a good mother to the young girl. And in the, in the particular scene that my friend chose to read to her, the alumni, the two are playing a game of chess. And in the course of playing the game of chess, the, the new mother is explaining that if you really want to be unhappy in life, we really want to be happy in life, excuse me, You've got to decide that there's one thing that you want more than anything else, and you're willing to give up everything else for that one thing. And the girl's sort of half listening, half not listening, and she begins to notice that her stepmother's a lousy chess player, losing pieces all over the board. And so the young girl starts getting more and more aggressive in the game. And what happens, though, of course, is checkmate. The mother wins. And my friend said after reading this to two or three alumni groups, she had to stop. Nobody wanted to hear that message. We all want to win our chess game and keep all our pieces. And it just doesn't work. So if you look at renunciation in the sense that certain relinquishment or renunciation in the sense that certain things have to be given up if you really want true happiness. There's a lovely passage in the Pali Canon where there's a, a monk who's a former king who goes and sits under a tree and he keeps saying, oh bliss, oh bliss. 
and his friend monks think he's probably thinking about his happiness back in the time when he was a king. So they go report it to the Buddha. The Buddha calls him in and says, okay, what are, you, what are you talking about when you're talking about bliss? And the monk says, well, back when I was a king and I had all those pleasures, still I needed guards inside the palace, guards outside the palace, guards inside the city, guards outside the city, guards inside the border, guards outside the border of the country. And even then I would wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat, afraid that this was all going to be taken away from me. But now that I'm a monk, I go sit under a tree. My needs are satisfied. My mind is, wa- mind is free like a wild deer. I have no fear whatsoever. That's the bliss he was talking about. So there is a happiness that comes from giving up. And it's something we tend to forget, largely because the message we get from our society is based on the happiness that comes from getting. Very few people out there are advertising the happiness that comes from giving up. There's no financial incentive. But it's a lesson that we have to repeat to ourselves again and again and again. That if you want true happiness in life, you have to have very clear priorities and be willing to make whatever sacrifices those priorities entail. Uh, Along with the the quality of renunciation under relinquishment comes the the quality of generosity. And here's a clear case of making a trade. You give up material things, you give up your time, you give up your energy, you give up your knowledge for the sake of the good qualities that you get developed in your mind in the giving up. Now the Buddha talks about generosity in many ways. What I think one of his most interesting teachers when he talks about the motivations and kind of the relative skill of the motivations. Basic motivation, most common motivation is that what I give will come back. What goes around comes around. If I'm generous to this person, someone is bound to be generous to me. Now, the Buddha doesn't say that it's a bad motivation. He says simply that there are better motivations. But it's a good one to start out with. Higher motivations come from the idea that giving just is good in and of itself. Another higher one than that is I'm well off. There are these other people who are not well off. It's not befitting that I sit around and you know, sort of feed all by myself without letting someone else feed. Higher than that is simply that the fact the act of generosity makes the mind serene. Higher than that still is the idea that it's simply an ornament of the goodness of your mind. It's a natural expression of the goodness that you've already got in your mind. So when you think about being generous in various ways, realize that you know, there are good qualities that come in the mind, both in the motivation and in the actual act of giving. And this is the trade. Nothing is lost in an act of generosity. But you also should be skillful in the way you give so that you don't regret your gift afterwards. There's a famous story in the the canon about a a millionaire who has a beautiful house, he has a wonderful carriage, he gets wonderful food is served to him, but he can't eat the wonderful food. He throws up after he eats the wonderful food. He can't sit in his carriage because it makes him dizzy. He can't stay in the house because fleas attack him. So he has to live outside in a little hut and eat very poor food and walk. And people ask the Buddha about this. And he says, well, in a previous lifetime, he had given a gift to a, a private Buddha, given alms to the private Buddha. But then after he'd given the alms to the private Buddha, he regretted it. He wished he'd eaten it himself. So the karma from having given the gift is all this wonderful stuff, but the regret means that you don't benefit. If you, if, and whether you believe in many lifetimes or not, the act of giving and then regretting is does not dis- develop good qualities in the mind. Once something is given, you realize, okay, if nothing else, I've developed good qualities. I have those to hold on to. 
appreciation and generosity. Okay, in the course of giving things up, there's a the final quality that we work on, <coughs> or that can be developed, is the calm that comes with equanimity. Now, the Buddha talks about equanimity on three levels. One is just the normal equanimity. When you see something, you don't feel one way or the other about it. That you're able to maintain equanimity <coughs> simply through the force of your will. And this doesn't mean it's just simple seeing, but also forcing yourself to be equanimous when things go wrong, when, or when things go too well and you want to make sure that you don't get too excited and lose your mindfulness. You've got to maintain a certain level of equanimity to see things clearly. The second level of equanimity comes from the practice of meditation, intense concentration. When you get to the mind to a level of equanimity that comes when the mind is perfectly still. And then the third level of equanimity comes with awakening. And you reflect on the fact that you've, your mind is no longer a slave to greed, anger, and delusion, and there's a sense of real peace and equanimity that comes from that realization. So you work on the earlier two forms of equanimity eventually to get to the third. Now John Lee, again, has a nice image for this, and he calls this putting the zeros first. He says in your life, if you, have, if you take a one and you put a zero after it, you've got ten. More zeros, it just it gets more and more complicated the more zeros you put after the one. If you put the zeros first, they don't count. One is still one. And so if you give priority to this, this sense of freedom in the mind, which, which is what the zeros stand for, then things are left simply as they are, and then you've got no complications whatsoever. So again, this comes back to the issue of priority. What are you putting first in your life? If, if you put the sense of peace, the sense of freedom of your mind as your number one priority, then the other issues in life get less and less and less com complicated. That's where my notes end. <laughs> so I guess that's where my talk will have to end. <laughs> so that these, these again are the four qualities of good determination. First is discernment coupled with goodwill to decide what you want your goals to be. The second quality is truth coupled with persistence, virtue, and endurance to stick with your goals. The third quality is relinquishment, which translates into generosity and renunciation, being willing to give up things that get in the way of the goals that you set for yourself. And finally is the element of calm, both being calm in the course of pursuing your goals and then developing a state of unshakable calm as a result, which is the sign that your goals have been well chosen and that you follow them properly. If you take these attitudes out into your life and remind yourself that it's the quality of mind that matters more than anything else, so that you're developing perfect qualities in the mind, perfection, things that are of utmost value in your life, then the issues of how things turn out outside, of course you're concerned, you want to succeed on the outside level, but ultimately the real value of your activities has to be in what qualities you're developing in the mind. Because these are the things that you can take with you. These are the things that you can look at as you get older. And Republican and Democratic, Democratic administrations get into the White House, and all kinds of things can change out there in the world. But you've still got these qualities of mind that you can hold on to as your, as your, as your solid accomplishment. So this is how the Buddhist teachings you know, from the very earliest generations of his students translated into how lay people can practice in an imperfect world and develop perfect qualities of mind, both the lay people and the monks. And so I think it's a, it's a useful pattern to look at 
terms of how you're leading your practice, because all too often we have the misconception that practice means sitting down on a cushion and meditating X number of hours a day, or going on a retreat. But in this particular instance, what you do in your job, what you do in your family life, how you drive a car down the road, all develops either skillful or unskillful qualities in the mind. And so you have to keep asking, what are the qualities in mind that are coming here? Maybe I can't change events outside, but I can work on the mind in any situation. And if you keep these ten perfections in mind, it gives a good roadmap to the direction you want to take. So that's the talk. Are there any questions, comments? Ideas? Yes? Could you um, explain the difference between a precept and a principle? A precept is a do and a don't. Mm -hmm. In terms of precepts, you would say, okay, I'm not going to kill. The principle might be the more general principle of non-harming. Okay. The same with not stealing. Okay, the general principle is one respecting the, the rights of others and being generous. Um, the, the precept against illicit sex, again, is respecting other people, respecting relationships. The precept against lying. Okay, you want to be truthful, as a general principle. But that also covers, you know, being beneficial in what you have to say. Because there are true things that are unbeneficial. And so you want to choose what's beneficial, what's true. Whether it's pleasing or displeasing, you've got to look at the right time and place to speak. Because these are general principles for which there are no hard and fast rules. But you take the principle of lying. Okay, I will not lie. I will not misrepresent the truth, no matter what. That's a precept. The precept against drinking. You won't drink. You won't take alcohol. You won't take drugs. That's a yes and no, black and white kind of decision. And then you will try to develop, and the Buddha pointed out that you, you know, whether, you, whether you drink alcohol or not, you're intoxicated anyhow, most of us. <laughs> intoxicated with youth, intoxicated with health, intoxicated with life. Okay, you've got to work on you know, being mindful so that you're not intoxicated. That's a more general principle. And you need both, precepts and the principles. If you have just the vague principles, it's very hard to apply them. attitude towards your mistakes, a willingness to recognize them, a willingness to learn from them. When you're judging the actions of others, again, look at the results that come. You judge the action, don't judge the person. Because when you're judging the action, then you can reflect, do I do that sort of thing? And you see somebody make some stupid move out on the street. You say, that stupid person, how could they drive that way? We reflect, do I drive that way? And more often than not, yeah. <laughs> and so he said, well, I've got, to, I've got to get my act together here. Being judgmental means you're too quick to make judgments. And one of the things I've always liked about Buddhism is the realization that it's not a religion with a final judgment. There's no one place where, you know, you know there's a God up there weighing you in the scales and there's the final sort of stamp, yes or no, good or bad. Buddhism was started by a person who had been imperfect and worked up to perfection. He knows where it's coming from. He knows where we're coming from. So you say, when you're judging other people in the sense of, are these people I want to associate with? 
are these people I want to take as my examples. Now that's a skillful use of your powers of judgment. Does that answer your question? Is the question back there? Yeah. Yeah, I was fascinated <coughs> by what you said about um, distinction between children and puberty. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, wondering uh, where, where you're reading or what you're reading. I was also curious if people do that well, that That's The texts say he did. Yeah. Now the qu- big question is: in Buddhist studies, is can we rely on the texts? Um, and I say, hey, look, when the texts give good lessons, sure. And in the case of the novices' questions, there are several cases where the Buddha is <coughs> quoted as saying that this is a good list of questions. This is a good way to learn the Dharma. There's another passage where he's actually teaching his son, and there's a whole series of teachings for his son, like teach, teaching on how to be truthful. The virtue, you know, the value of being truthful. The teaching on how to reflect on your actions, reflect on your mistakes. This is one that he was taught, the son was taught when he was seven. Before you act, reflect on what you're going to do. This action that I'm planning, is it going to be skillful or not? If not, don't do it. While you're acting, watch what you're doing. Bad results come out, stop. If good results are coming, continue. Then after you've acted, reflect on your actions, on their long-term consequences. And if you realize that what you did, but looked good at the time, turned out to be a mistake, go talk it over with somebody else who's also on the path. Very basic teachings and things that we tend to overlook. I mean, if we had that teaching down, a lot of psychological disturbances <laughs> would be done with. You have the proper attitude toward your mistakes, okay, you can live with your mistakes, learn from them, talk them over with other people. You know, no psychosis, no neurosis. Um, and as the Buddha said, building on this, you can, you can derive a lot of his more sophisticated teachings from this basic basic principle. So I think it's good to trace it back to the basic principle, see where he's coming from. There's also a whole series of uh, teachings that he gave to a king. Now kings back in those times, it's always interesting I found that when you look when the Buddha's talking about the dangers in life, and, he's, and, and he lumps ro- uh, kings in with robbers. <laughs> And there's this particular king, Vasana de Gosala, who comes to the Buddha, and he asks pretty basic questions. It's like talking to a kid. And so again, it's, it's an interesting series of teachings where you can get the very basic teachings laid out in really clear, easy to understand terms. And then when you've, when you've gotten those down, then you can see his more sophisticated teachings, you see where they're coming from. And you don't get lost in the abstractions. I mean, you can read so many books about what does the principle of inter- interaction or interrelatedness mean towards for ecology? What does the principle of emptiness mean towards this, that, and the other thing? And they're all dealing up in this very abstract level. And it's hard to see exactly how they come down. And one of the things I learned most when I was in, had, during my training in Thailand is that my teacher had no patience at all for abstractions. And the idea being that the more you're dealing in abstractions, the more you can lie to yourself. So get it down to black and white practicalities, and things get a lot clearer. So, uh, yeah. How can <coughs> teachers, uh, we have uh, a cat Sabbath named for Sam Collins. Mm-hmm. Uh, I go to an online Christian in 96, so I was usually yeah. mm-hmm. taking math. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where you should go? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, remember. 
as I said, you know, that the perfections are not in the earliest level of the text. They come in a later level. <coughs> um, <coughs> and what, it se- what they seem to come from, do you know the Jataka tales? Yeah, it's basically a series of tales that purport to be stories of the Buddha's previous lifetimes, in which the Buddha is maybe an animal, a lay person, um, a deva, all kinds of different levels of being. And each tale purports to tell a lesson that the Buddha learned or a quality that he developed in that particular lifetime that helped towards his awakening. And by the time the Jatakas came around, you also had Buddhism was splitting into different schools. Now the Theravada went through their Jatakas and kind of tried to analyze what are the qualities that this Bodhisattva is developing in the course of his many, many lifetimes. And what's interesting, the Jataka tells, sometimes the Buddha doesn't come off very well. Um, one of the most striking ones is where he's a hermit, and he gets invited to the palace to teach the queen. And he's teaching the queen, and the king gets so that he really trusts the hermit with the queen, so he leaves him alone. The hermit makes advances on the queen. <laughs> the queen says, I thought you were a hermit. <laughs> <laughs> The hermit gets so embarrassed, he goes off in the forest. Now, the hermit was the Buddha in that particular lifetime. So the Buddha's not always the, <laughs> the good character in these stories. But they went through and they decided the list of the virtues the Buddha developed in this Jataka tales were ten. Then you get the Sarvastivadin school, which is another sort of one of the early schools. They analyzed their Jatakas, they came out with six. And when Buddhism moved from from India into China. And you have to realize that each of these early schools developed both what we would call sort of, you know, the Hinayana and the Mahayana within each of the schools. There was a Theravada Mahayana. There was a Sarvastivadin Mahayana. It was because Sarvastivadins were centered in northwestern India. They were the ones who went into China. So they carried their theory of the six Barnamese into China. Now it turns out that there was another school that had another ten, but was different from the Theravadins. They got theirs transmitted into China as well. And no one's really sure which school that was. So there are at least three separate lists of the Barmese that are out there. So that, this is where the, the difference comes from. They're all good. <laughs> There's no such thing as a bad Barmese. <laughs> You're awfully quiet for a Cambridge audience. (laughs) (laughs) Yes? When you were talking about going from you were talking about qualities of mind It, ap- it applies across the board. Mm-hmm. Well, generosity is a skillful quality. Okay, yeah. Right. You, you were... Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
But you, you have to know your own strengths and weaknesses um, in terms of just the people you tend to associate with. There's some people you've got to associate with willy-nilly because they're in your work, they're in your sort of your neighborhood. You've got to deal with them. But you have to be look at the people in terms of, okay, who are the people I'm going to be taking as my examples? Who are the people I'm going to open my heart to? And you have to be very judicious in, in that kind of choice. Now you can be just judicious with your help towards other people, but there are certain people you want to be helpful to, but you can't really open yourself up totally to them. You can't take them as your example. And you have to realize what your limits are in terms of how much you can give. Because you want to be generous to yourself as well. You know? There's a teaching I learned one time from a martial arts instructor. He talked about a <coughs> story that comes from China about there was going to be a martial arts demonstration out in the forest. And there was this pavilion in the middle of the forest, and there was a road going to the pavilion. On the side of the road was a, a donkey who was well known for kicking people. And so the martial arts students are going to the pavilion, and they come to the donkey and they say, well, let's show off our skills first before we get to the pavilion. So first student goes up to the donkey and tries one stance and the donkey kicks him across the road. Second student comes up says, you fool, that's not how it's done. He tries another stance. He gets kicked across the road. Ultimately, all the students get kicked across the road by the donkey. So they're waiting for the teacher to see what he's going to do. So they, they're on the side of the road watching. The teacher comes, sees the donkey, walks way around. <laughs> <laughs> So you have to know what your own strengths are in terms of the people you deal with. He walked way around the donkey. He didn't get anywhere near. of what they call the Ten Recollections, which are meditation themes. And most of them, what nine out of the ten are sort of corrective thinking. Um, the one that's not is breath meditation. It requires as little thought as possible. But you've got recollection of the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha to correct thoughts of um, discouragement, 
thoughts of you know, lack of faith in, your, in yourself, lack of faith in the teaching. You reflect on you know, what kind of person the Buddha was, how good the Dharma is, to counteract you know, thoughts of um, discouragement. There's recollection of your own generosity, recollection of your own virtue, to counteract thoughts of you know, low self-esteem. There's recollection of death to counteract lazy thoughts. And there's a whole series of things related to recollection of death. Um, One of the most striking ones is where the Buddha said, every morning when the sun rises, remind yourself, I could die today. Am I ready to go? Well, no, (laughs) I'm not ready to go. (laughs) Okay, why are you not ready to go? Well, certain qualities in my mind aren't worked through yet. Okay, let's do it, work on it. Again, when the sun sets, you remember, I could die tonight. I mean, the people who are going to di- who are going to die tonight, you know, when the sunset, did they know? Nobody really. Very few people know. Could happen to anyone. And so this sort of this kind of thinking helps counteract laziness. There's a uh, ref- uh, reflection on the body to counteract feelings of lust. Also, interestingly enough, to counteract a negative body image or an unhealthy negative body image, because you realize, well, not only do I have an ugly liver, everybody else in this room has an ugly liver. <laughs> We're all equal. <laughs> so it's the patterns of thinking that are useful for counteracting un- unskillful thinking. And when you try to meditate without using that kind of thinking, you're missing a large element of the of the practice. So the Buddha had his own cognitive. What do they call it? Cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah, yeah. So that you learn to use skillful thinking to counteract unskillful thinking, and then it's easier for the mind to settle down. But it's a, it's a, it's an elemental part of the practice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's a pretty clear area in one of the publication about skillful determination. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What does it amount to? Do you know, more than amount of knowledge was there? Right. Um, and so his resolution, when he when he does, he sees a, 
Where's the nearby strawberry? <laughs> <laughs> If they're feeding on you in a harmful way, I mean the Buddha doesn't teach us to be doormats, okay? But if someone is feeding on you in, an un- in a harmful way, you've got to end that relationship. Like that. Um, in the in the in the monks' rules, monks are not allowed to strike anyone unless it's in self-defense, and it's granted as an exception. So you don't, you're not totally passive. Now, if it looks like you're totally, totally doomed, I mean, it's, it doesn't help to have ill will towards the bear. You can still fight him off without ill will, because you realize this is a dumb bear is eating the wrong person. It <laughs> 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 doesn't know any better, okay? It's simply a hungry bear out there. But it's best, you know, to work on the qualities of your mind at that moment. If nothing, if I can't save my body, I've got to at least save the qualities of my mind. And there are many stories they have of forest monks who are out in very dangerous situations in the forest, and they, you know, they ultimately decide what I've got to hold on to is my mind. One of the most famous stories in Thailand is of an old uh, forest master. His name was Ajahn Kao, since passed away. He was staying in a ca- in a cave. He didn't realize that there was a tiger further in the cave, but it had so happened that it's sort of in his comings and goings from the cave, as he would go to other places to meditate and come back to sleep. When he was out of the cave was the time when the tiger was coming in and out of the cave. So he, their paths never crossed until one night, it was a bright moonlit night, and he decided to go out and do walking meditation in front of the mouth of the cave. And as he was doing walking meditation, the tiger came. And immediately he, he had this huge sense of fear that came over him. But instead of focusing on the tiger, he focused in on the fear. He says, if I let this fear overcome my mind, that's the end of me. And so he watched the fear, and it was as if the tiger didn't exist at that point for him. But just watching, watching the fear, there came a point where the fear ended. And, and there was a quality, a great clarity of mind that came up at that. And he went in a very deep stage of concentration. Came out and knew from the moon that the several hours had passed. But the tiger was gone. So that's the Thai answer to the strawberry. <laughs> Focus in on your mind. I had, I had a similar case when I'm going to the details of the story, but m- m- after I'd been ordained for about ten, nine or ten years, I was electrocuted. And I thought I was going to die. And you realize at that point a lot of thoughts are going to come up in your mind, as they actually did in my case. You know, Regrets about, well, I wish I'd you know, lived a little bit longer to do this, and I wish I hadn't done that in the past. They keep coming at you, and you realize I cannot h- hang on to these thoughts. I've got to keep my mind clear. 
And it's at a time like this when you really realize that these qualities you develop in your meditation are very useful. Because this determines where you're going to go. And so I said, just, okay, I can't think that thought, can't think that thought, just stay right here in the present moment. Fortunately, the electric current was stopped, and so I didn't die. But you realize, okay, this is where you've got to focus. Because at that moment, everything else in life is just not going to have any meaning at all. But the qualities you've developed up to that point are the ones that are going to carry you through. If you let it get in the way of doing the right thing the next time, then it's an unhealthy emotion. You, should, you want to regret, you know, if you, do, if you do make a mistake, there should be regret. Okay, I shouldn't have made that mistake. I don't want to make it again. And so it has to be coupled with a, with a determination, I'm not going to make that mistake again. And leave it at that, but maintain that determination. Because if you get yourself overwhelmed by regret, then it's very difficult to make the right decision the next time around. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, I'm familiar with uh, you know, learning something like this in Gary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are forest monasteries? What are forest monasteries? Different location. <laughs> um, Ours is close to a forest monastery. We live in an avocado orchard out in California. In Thailand, when you get forest monasteries, they really are out in the forest, out in the wilderness. <coughs> the purpose in going into a place like that is, one, it's secluded. And then, two, there's, um, there's a certain edge to things. I mean, of course, you have the, the concrete jungle here in, in, in the Boston area. But they're what my teacher used to set calling it, the real teachers out in the forest. You have snakes, you have other animals that can you know, enforce mindfulness. <laughs> 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 so it's, it's a combination of the seclusion and the sense of danger that sort of you know, give a new, new side to the practice. Also, I had an experience several years back. Uh, in fact, it was a CIMC meditator who was used to practicing at CIMC, IMS, Barry Center of Buddhist Studies, came out and stayed in our, in our grove there. And after the first day of meditation, he came back and said, this is a very noisy place. I said, noisy place? What do you mean noisy places? Well, there's the sound of the birds. There's the sound of the wind and the leaves. <laughs> there's the sound of the bugs crawling through the leaves. Sitting and walking is very different outside in the forest than it is in a center like this. And there's a, there's a really nice quality to it. Um, so that's what a forest monastery is basically for. Any questions? We, we, people come and visit and have individual retreats, basically fitting into the daily schedule of the monastery and um, helping with the work of the monastery. Okay, there's, there's, there's pleasure, joy, equanimity. These are the three positive emotions you want to have in the practice. There's a joy that comes with a sense of accomplishment. First, the joy that you're on the right path while you're practicing. 
even when it's difficult, you can take joy in the fact, well, at least I'm headed in the right direction. And that's a healthy, healthy emotion. Um, there's equanimity that comes when you realize, okay, if I get obsessed by the fact that I haven't attained my goal yet, it's going to be bad for me. So you know, try to develop equanimity there. What's interesting is that the Buddha also talks about a healthy use of, of dissatisfaction. In the sense that um, I've got a goal, I'm not there yet. Use that dissatisfaction in a healthy way to spur you on to more action. So there's a place for all three of these emotions if you use them properly. And we don't we very rarely think of our emotions as tools, but this is how the practice takes them. What what good can you get out of joy? What good can you get out of equanimity? What good can you get out of dissatisfaction? If you're skillful in your attitude towards your emotions, you can benefit from them. But yeah, there's a sense of joy that comes. It's, it's like I mean, oftentimes it's hard to measure progress in the practice. But there are times when you can look back and say, those things that used to bother me don't bother me anymore. Those things I used to do, I don't do anymore. And it's, it's a good thing. And I think maybe it comes from the Judeo-Christian background that we all come from, that you shouldn't feel too good about yourself. But Buddha now says, don't do that. That there's a healthy way of feeling good about yourself in the practice. And there's also a healthy way of being dissatisfied in the practice. There's that great Calvin and Hobbes cartoon where Calvin is making a snowman. And he's saying, I've realized that my problem in life is that I set too high goals for myself. <laughs> That's why I'm dissatisfied. So I'm going to lower my goals. And so he ends up with a snowman that has only two sections. <laughs> <laughs> And Hobbes' comment is, remind me to invest overseas. <laughs> so. so dissatisfaction can be a healthy thing if you use it properly. Okay, well, thank you for coming. I hope it was helpful. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.